and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept the person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely in life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me, in my attitudes. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 24. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests and provide you with a front-row seat to their recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad you are here, and I hope that you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. My name is John M. My sobriety date is 10-12-07. How many years is that? That's 14 years, Mike. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? I was born in Fort Worth, South Fort Worth, up till my teenage years. I later moved to the country, uh, Poolville, Texas. What's it called? Poolville? Poolville, Texas. How do you spell it? P-O-O-L-V-I-L-L-E. I've never heard of it. What's going on out there? (laughs) (laughs) Not much going out in Poolville. Very rural country area. That was my father's uh, escape from the uh, suburban life. I guess my parents were what you would consider uh, hippies. My father had a very large garden, raised bees, very active in homeopathic remedies. Most of my youth was, uh, and I have fond memories of that playing in the backyard, helping my father tend to the bees, harvesting honey, living off the land in uh, South Fort Worth. That's exciting. Do you still like, do you like, do you like to eat honey and eat vegetables today? Or are you over it? I am uh, followed uh, my family's traditions. And it's funny how we spend our life getting away from our youth and the rest of our life getting back to our youth. I'm currently uh, enrolled in beekeeping classes, and uh, <laughs> That's I, so ha- cool. <laughs> I have nine colonies that I will pick up this uh, spring, so I'm very excited about that. So okay. I've prepared the hives, and I've actually purchased some land recently, and uh, looking forward to that next adventure. That's awesome. One of my friends here in Dallas named Warren, I'll introduce you to him. Uh, he's in the program with us, but he has bees too. He keeps bees. Excellent. In his backyard. He's got the sweetest backyard ever and love that guy and I love his bees. That's fantastic. So did you have any livestock there? It sounds like a pretty cool little joint. We did. Uh, my job was uh, to tend to the rabbits and chickens and uh, goats. That's pretty amazing. We had that uh, small little homestead farm mm-hmm. in South Fort Worth. You said your dad, your mom and dad were kind of hippies. Were they listening to cool hippie style music and wearing tie dye or it was just more their mindset? Just their mindset, being self-sustaining, composting, as mentioned, homeopathic remedies, mm-hmm. just uh, what I call the 
the hippie lifestyle, uh, living off the land, a zero footprint type mentality, I guess, uh, before it was uh, chic. <laughs> yeah, right. That's really cool. So you mentioned you bought some land recently. Are you going to try to emulate and do the same type of deal? I sure am. I'm very excited about that. I call that a, a win for me in recovery to be able to uh, be financially stable able to live out my dreams and uh, purchasing land and getting ready. I'm uh, approaching 50, so I'm looking towards uh, retirement. So this purchase of land is one of those uh, components. What were your thoughts on spirituality as a young person? My mother was uh, the leader of spirituality, of taking us to church. I was active in the Methodist church growing up. Obviously, I didn't have a, a, a grounding or great connection with my higher power at that time, but definitely was shown the religious aspects of outward worship, have fond memories, sang in the choir, <laughs> and very active, lots of uh, you know summer uh, potluck dinners and great memories of that. When did you become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? My dad was a pretty heavy drinker back then. Definitely, they would have parties and social gatherings and Part of my job was to uh, fetch a beer for my father or the guests, mm-hmm. get paid a buck or whatever <laughs> for my dad. Uh, definitely uh, would uh, take a few sips as my uh, fee for fetching that beer. Right. So delivery fee. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, alcohol was a part of our life. And most of my family members were heavy drinkers or partiers. And it was a normal environment for me to be around alcohol. And that was a... Uh, uh, an elixir. What about your mom? Was she drinking? My mother never drank heavily. She would have a few drinks, but it wasn't uh, a big component of her life. How did that alcohol affect your dad? What, what did you see? Because I know you have, were observing. He used alcohol heavily, and I saw the uh, effects of that, arguments with the parents. I saw that, you know, my, my aunt and uncle's uh, struggles with alcohol. Alcohol is definitely a family disease in in my life. You know, it was around me 24-7. Did your dad ever take a shot at getting sober, or is he still drinking a little bit today? My dad is an enigma to me. Uh, He's around 76, and, uh, you know, he's he told me recently he just doesn't care about drinking, you know. Uh It just makes him tired, and it just, I definitely question my reality or definition of alcoholism because I always thought as my father is a an alcoholic and and for him to say those things that just is bizarre to me so maybe he isn't an alcoholic I don't know he he uh my dad has really opened up to me recently and I've made some conscious uh you know not attempts but uh I as you get older, you want to stay connected with your family, and those moments are precious. So I've definitely penciled in a lot of time with my father, and we've had some great conversations. He is a Vietnam veteran, and he's never divulged any of his history in Vietnam, and he recently has. And And I think my father was coping himself with alcohol and going through his PTSD, and he's uh, a seeking a counselor now. It's just everything I've defined my father as is just been flipped, and uh, it's it's been a very eye opening to me. And our conversations now, later in life, have been great. 
That's fantastic. I wanted to mention the fact that you've got 14 years sober, and in my opinion, that's rolling into long-term sobriety. And so you're starting to see the benefits of long-term sobriety. And I wanted to let our listeners know that one of the benefits of staying long-term sober is you get to be in a position over a long number of years where you are emotionally available to people. I have been having some very interesting conversations with my father lately, who is 78 and I'm 51 and I've got 21 years sober. And the reason, the reason I'm throwing all those numbers at you right now is so you can understand that I'm still getting some really interesting benefits of being sober. So when I sit down with him and talk to him now, we have discussions that are new, that we've never had before, talking about topics that we've never talked about before, and growing closer in love and togetherness. And, and I know it's never been spoken out loud, but I'm speaking it out loud now on this podcast. I know it's 100% due to the fact that I'm sober and available to be with him and around him and open up to him. And I know how to talk to him now because I've been sitting in these AA meetings for years. And a lot of these topics of these AA meetings and what we dig into is our feelings and how do we walk through life. It's just really cool to be able to have these types of experiences. Uh, I'll throw one at you real quick as a real life example. Like a year ago, me and my dad were in the car for six hours, just him and I. And so for six hours, we're going to talk. And so I told him at the beginning of the ride, I go, dad, you and I have never talked about what you believe and what you think about God that much. You're 77 years old. I'm 50 years old. Do you mind if we talk about God real quick and let me ask you a few questions about who you are and what you think? And he goes, yeah, sure. And you know how many times we had done that? Never, never, dude. So we fired up that conversation. Actually, it was me. I fired up that conversation and we got going and I got to learn about him and his thoughts and his ideas as a 77-year-old man about what he thought about God and who he was and what he was taught as a child and what he believes. And then I told him a little bit about me and I shared with him about what my experience was like um, at church and, and then falling deeply into active alcoholism and drug addiction and then coming out of that via and based on a spiritual experience and just letting him know that my entire sobriety is based off of uh, a, a spiritual connection that I have with my higher power, which allows me a daily reprieve to where I don't have to drink and use drugs anymore. And I don't know what that did for him or didn't do for him, but it was very interesting for me to be a part of that conversation. So I totally get what you're saying about having those cool conversations with your dad. That's great, Mike. Uh, sobriety, as, uh, as you mentioned, long-term sobriety, it just opens up doors, emotions that uh, I never thought I would have and, and also dispels uh, preconceived notions, the contempt I had towards family members and getting to know them better and being open to that, knowing that uh, feelings are not facts. Well, people know that they can trust you because you've been throwing it down, the sobriety thing that you've been, you've been holding that down for years and they're like, okay, I can trust you. I want to have those conversations today because I'm turned on spiritually and I'm turned on in recovery and I'm turned on in love and I'm turned on in family. And guess what? If I was still drinking and drugging, you know what I'd be doing? I would not be wanting to talk to you about those things because here's a few reasons why I would not want to be talking to you about those things. Because one, I'd be dead. Two, I'd be in prison. And you can't talk to me like that when I'm in prison. I mean, we could write each other letters and stuff, but it ain't going to go down like it should be going down. Or I'd still be actively using. During my active addiction, I would be in a position where I would be so closed off and I wouldn't want to have conversations like that with you because those are real conversations. And you might start asking me questions I'm not comfortable with. And when I'm drinking and drugging, all I care about is living that lifestyle. And I just am not mentally, spiritually, or physically in a place where I'd be able to have those conversations. So I think that's pretty cool. 
Can I talk to you a little bit about what alcohol did for you? I remember my first conscious drink of alcohol to uh, soothe the situation that I was in. My parents had a big party planned for it for many months. Uh, We lived out in the country in Poolville, so uh, lots of planning and preparation. On the night of the party, I might have been dejected by another girl. I just remember just having a lot of self-loathing at that time and feeling sorry for myself and grabbing a bottle of Jack Daniels and just taking off in in the middle of the night and uh, crying, taking a pull of that Jack Daniels. And that was my medicine. That was my elixir to uh, help me with this situation. I remember the burning in my, my belly. That was a common theme for feeling sorry for myself later in my drinking career and just uh, the self-loathing, I call it reverse pride, put on some Miles Davis and uh, she rejected me and and listened to that music and drink and drug and and, uh, ease the pain. How old were you at that point? I believe I was 12 or 13. How did you secure alcohol as a minor? sounds like you were lifting it off your parents a little yeah, bit here. family members yeah random unmonitored ice chest uh, <laughs> later when i was 14 or 15 i worked at a convenience store and taking out the trash would be several 40s and uh-huh. uh, full, full 40s full 40s that you had grabbed from the, their cooler and thrown in the trash five finger discount <laughs> and what uh, would you tell me more about that so you get out to the dumpster and what would you do pull them out and hide them behind the dumpster that's, you got it that's you got gangster. it that is gangster. use the alcohol for securing rides to parties and uh-huh. uh what were you very drinking? effective what kind of beers were you drinking I, I always drank Budweiser is that what your dad was drinking too yeah yeah definitely but uh, beer was my uh, drug of choice, uh, marijuana. Get some Mickey's going. Oh God, the Mickey's Big Mouth. Yeah, <laughs> so gross. <laughs> I used to drink that. It's, a, I think it's a malt liquor. Yeah, yeah. It comes in that. We used to get that. They call them Mickey's Big Mouths. They yes. had the big round tops. <laughs> so gross. It smelled like skunk. When would you say that you started drinking on a regular basis? My senior year in high school, around that time, I was working at the convenience store. I had regular ac- access to alcohol, so I was. Uh, starting to drink alcohol regularly. Later, when I graduated from high school, I decided to move in with my grandparents. They lived up in Lake Tex- in the Lake Texoma area. Uh-huh. And then I started going across the border to Oklahoma to pick up beer. And Oklahoma beer has a less alcoholic uh, content or a lower alcoholic content. And I noticed I was drinking more and more and more and uh, using that to uh, as my... Uh, Medicine. Do you, do you think they still have that today? They call it three two beer, right? Yeah, three two. Do you think they yes. still have that? I think so. What? Uh, you have to unless you buy an import. I bet the beer stores on the border of Oklahoma and Texas on the Texas side probably sell a ton of beer. Yes, I think those Oklahoma guys are like, what? I'm not gonna. Does it say three two beer on it or something? Like I think that? it does. How much land did you guys have when you were a kid? When you were living out there in Poolville, acre two twenty. What were you living on? A uh, forty acres out 40 in Poolville. It's, it's great. <laughs> Very isolated, though, uh, not a great environment for a, a young teenager. So uh, definitely isolated out there and kind of contributed to my, my story. Your delinquency. Yes. Are they still out there? Do they still have that property? We, my father still has the property. That's yes. so cool. Yeah, it is. How much did you buy? Did you buy some acreage? I mean, up north, but how much did you get? I bought 11 acres. Wow. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. And uh, bought another parcel of land in Colorado. So uh-huh. it's very exciting. I have a, a retirement vision is to Colorado property, 
uh, having a Texas uh, hub and then uh, uh, Florida property to be able to travel back and forth. So did you ever have blackouts? Would you, were you a blackout drinker? I had blackouts. There'd be periods of time I would wonder how I got home safely. There were periods of times where I'd go out to my vehicle and check for damage. That was very scary, not knowing how I got home. For the most part, I was pretty lucid during my drinking, but there would definitely be times where I didn't know how I got home. Yeah, I've heard of people having to do that. They wake up the next morning, they walk out to their car, and they walk around it to see if there's any damage. That's very scary. Yeah, I know some people that had blackouts, they would have to get on their uh, banking apps and look at their credit card statements to see where they went and what time they were there and how much they spent. They're like, I don't remember going there. It doesn't seem yeah, like something I would have Trying done. to figure out what happened to all my money. Yeah, try to re- reconstruct what happened. Um, so did, when did it occur to you that you might have a problem with alcohol, and what did you do about that thought? I blamed a lot of my consequences on I should have made a left turn, should have made a right turn. I should stop hanging out with those people. Those cops are being mean to me, mm-hmm. being tough, being bullies. It came to the point where I ran out of excuses. I've had three DWIs. First run in was when I was 20, received a DWI in Colorado, received a DWI in Texas. Received a DWI in Kansas. Did they ever communicate between the three? Did they realize? Well, this was, uh, I have two sobriety dates. Uh-oh. First person <laughs> on the podcast with two sobriety <laughs> You mean like you drank after your first one? No, uh, I haven't drank since my first uh, run with uh, AA sobriety. Okay. Um, August 27th, 1995 is my sobriety date with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went back out, but... Uh, it was with drugs. Uh, I put alcohol in a box, and I thought I conquered alcohol, mm-hmm. dabbled in drugs, and uh, later realized that I needed to reestablish. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Uh, do you consider yourself an alcoholic and a drug addict? I really do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've done the. I've done the work. Yeah. Um, did others ever confront you about your drinking um, and start to ask you questions about your behavior? No one ever did. My mother would make comments. As mentioned, uh, drinking was uh, part of my family structure, environment, drinking uh, on the weekends, parties. It was very prevalent. I later found out uh, most of my family members didn't have the problems that I accrued as I was uh, going through my drinking career. So that was another indicator to me that I might have a drinking problem. You know, it was the DWIs definitely were shocking to me. But later, you know, I would get the DWI, be remorseful. Shortly thereafter, I would get over the shock of the DWI and being arrested and uh, would pick up the drinking again. And it was on my third DWI is when I realized that I can't stop drinking. It's going to be a matter of time before I get another DWI. Lucky or unlucky for me, all those DWIs, it was before uh, the internet was prevalent and uh, they were not connected. They're all first offenses. If I did that today, I'd probably be felony in jail, probably. What did you think when you had those thoughts after that third DWI, when you said, I can't stop drinking, I'm probably just going to get a fourth in the matter of time. What did you do about that thought? Just keep drinking and drugging? Well, uh, that's when I had a moment of clarity. I was uh, driving to work. I was still wearing the same clothes from the night before, just partied through the night, and uh, had a 
strong work ethic, so I was going to be on time. I looked over driving, commuting in, and the guy was driving a nice vehicle, suit. I looked over at him, and I said, I bet he doesn't have the problems I have. I think I had a suspended license at the time and had probation and all the court cases and court school and so forth, alcohol classes. That was my moment of clarity, thinking that uh, you know I might have a drinking problem in my life and, and just need to seek help. What did you do? Did you say a quick prayer or did you just decide to? Yes, uh, definitely when driving in to work. I think I was on a job site. I work in construction and at that time I worked in the field and I was uh, sitting in my vehicle waiting to perform an inspection. Just ask God to please help me. You know, later that was the beginning of my, my walk. Did you ever use any special techniques to try to control and enjoy your drinking towards the end? Tried to swear off draft beers. <laughs> no draft beers. Uh, definitely hard liquor was uh, my kryptonite. If I was drinking hard liquor, I was definitely uh, something was going to happen. I had an uncanny sense to know when to leave, but unfortunately, when I left, I was drunk before something bad happened at a, a party or something like that. But you know, I just tried to have a meal before I drank, pace myself, drink after five o'clock. I had all these lines that I later crossed. I prided myself in a, a strong work ethic, and later I just could not show up to work on time. That was another realization that I might have a drinking problem. And, uh, I used to travel when I worked and was asked to return back to the home office just because of my being late for work and starting to show uh, signs of alcoholism early. That's a scary and unfortunate time when you're active alcoholic drinking, when you start to realize that your disease is progressing to a point where you're starting to have trouble meeting your life obligations. That's right. But you realize that there's really no way for you to cut back on the drinking, so you're going to have to try to figure out something else. I'll just do your best. I, I was so scary. I would drink and drug so late into the night, and then I was supposed to be at work at 8 o'clock in the morning, and that's a problem when you're super drunk and super high at 4 or 5 a.m., but uh, you want to go to work, and you need to be at work because you told them you were going to be at work, and you use that money that you get at work to buy more alcohol and drugs, so you've got a whole vicious cycle running, but you know, eventually you're like, oh, yo, this my world's getting pretty small, and I'm having trouble meeting my um, obligations. Did you ever go through a period of denial with your drinking? And I want to talk to you a little bit about the term functioning alcoholic. This is the first time I brought this up on, on this podcast and you'll be the first person I ever talked to about the term functioning alcoholic. I, for myself, I'll go first and then you can go. I noticed that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, but I also was not ready to quit. And I heard this term called functioning alcoholic and I liked it. I was like, yo, that describes me pretty well. Because, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I mean, I don't think everybody drinks and drugs every day like I do. But guess what? I also have a job. And I also have a girlfriend. And I also surf. So, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, but I'm a functioning alcoholic. So, can you relate to that term at all? And also, did you ever go through a period of denial with your drinking? I did. Um, when I first got pulled over for drinking, uh, you know, I just thought it was just circumstance. Uh one time I was speeding to go up a hill in Colorado and my excuse was, well, I was speeding to get up the hill. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just would rationalize that as bad luck and, uh, I just need to do better. I need to manage better. 
Yeah. Did you ever, what about functional alcoholic? Did you ever like that term or hear that term or think that was you? I, I saw people in my life, uh, family members, other friends, and, you know, they were able to drink and drug and not have the count consequences. So I was definitely jealous of that because I had lots of consequences. So I just thought I was not managing my alcoholism. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't call it alcoholism, but I yeah. just wasn't managing properly. <laughs> wow. Did you have any legal consequences due to your drinking besides the three DWIs you've talked about? Yes. With the DWIs, I just had lots of court, night court, alcohol classes. Uh, later, I had a, a criminal case, some anger management courses I had to take. I had a custody battle at the time and a divorce. So I had all of those, that trifecta going at the same time. That was definitely overwhelming to me at the time and definitely was another indicator that my life was unmanageable. Uh, what about treatment centers or hospitals? Did you ever end up in a treatment center for alcohol or drug addiction or a hospital for accidents or anything? I never did. I did the homegrown recovery. My cousin and I uh, got sober together. At the same time, he went to a meeting, AA meeting initially. Three days later, invited me to come with him. And uh, I had a lot of consequences at that time and sounded like a great idea. So I have a, I've had a lot of stops and starts in AA. And that was uh, another start that I uh, started going into the program and seeking recovery. What did you think about the AA program when you first arrived and went to your first few meetings? What were your thoughts, your initial thoughts? My first meeting, AA meeting, was in Colorado. It was in a small town, Lake City, Colorado. I think there was like three AA members, and I always say that they look like three wizards to me with white beards, and <laughs> I sat on one side of the table, and the wizard sat on the other side, and I was so young. I, you know, I thought I was too young to be an alcoholic. I believe I was 20 years old in my first court-ordered AA meeting, God, I was 19 at my <laughs> We have that. You and I have a very similar we sure do. track. Yeah, I was 19 when I rolled in my first one. And I'll tell you, my first thought is it looked nothing like I thought it was going to look like. I thought it was going to be a bunch of real old dudes in trench coats with piss stains on them. <laughs> and I walked in there. Yeah, there was some old dudes in there, but they didn't have uh, pee stained trench coats. So I was shocked at that. First thing I was surprised for for me was the amount of cigarette smoke. I mean, because they were getting it. And I was a non-smoker at the time, and still am. I've never been a smoker. But I stayed and hung out because my mom was outside waiting for me and watching in the window to see if I was going to try to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I read the second set of talking about return to sanity, and I'm like, I'm not insane, man. I'm 19 years old, dog. I know a lot. I know more than you. I just had a lot of interesting thoughts. But it, I enjoyed it, and I liked the people, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So those were my first observations about going into those meetings. What other observations did you have about early sobriety in AA besides the three wizards? I had the same preconceived notion about who went to AA and the trench coats and homeless people. I was really shocked that uh, it was uh, doctors, lawyers, Me everyday too. people. There were some gangsters in there, man. Yeah. There were some celebrities in there. I will not mention their names, but I sat in meetings with celebrities. I sat in meetings with highly successful doctors and lawyers and politicians and celebrities. And I was like, some pretty high-powered dudes in there and some really nice ladies heavy in there. hitters. Yeah, and some nice ladies. But yeah, they were all, it was a complete, um, and I figured out that alcoholic, alcoholism and drug addiction is not a respecter of your socioeconomic income status or your race or your age or your creed. It doesn't matter. It strikes wherever it wants to strike. And it's just a menagerie of people in there. I liked it. 
pretty much right off the bat. Now, I didn't stay sober after my first AA meeting, God, no. But I did kind of like it. Is there another moment of clarity that you want to speak about, or you, that moment of clarity earlier? I'm just kind of curious. You said you made a few starts and stops with the AA program. Can you maybe paint a picture of what that looked like that time in your life, or talk a little bit more about a moment of clarity if there is one? What do you want to do with that? I've had a lot of stops and starts. I lived in Fort Worth the first part of my in my 30s. Was active in the Glass House bounce between the glass house and uh, the harbor club those are the names of two local aa groups here in north texas yes when they're both fantastic i've heard i've been to the glass house a couple times excellent yeah that's where i first got my my legs into uh, the program working the steps believe i got to the fourth step and that's where i always say I, i graduated the program graduated from aa told everyone thank you very much i appreciate your help i got this don't call me. I'll call you. Um, I'm going to go see, you know, I've got this alcohol conquered. That's where there was a period where uh, what I call uh, had about 10 years of being a dry drunk, not drinking, didn't have much of a spiritual program, but was uh, stark raving sober. That's when the anxiety started kicking in that I didn't normally have uh, high anxiety. That's when I started having a a lot of sleepless nights a lot of worry anxiety fear broke up with the love of my life and at the time and was uh in a lot of turmoil when someone suggested that maybe you should try aa again it it sounded like a great idea who was that someone that was my stepfather funny story uh, my my mother and stepfather when i first went into aa saw the uh, recovery in my life and the changes in my life they were very uh, impressed with that and uh, started seeking uh, recovery for themselves in Al-Anon. They started their journey after seeing the changes in my life. Although I, I stopped going to AA, they continued in AA uh, through Al-Anon. Later, my brother and uh, now his wife, they both uh, met in Alateen. So I always say this, uh, it's a family disease, but there's also a, a family of recovery available as well. That's beautiful. And they stayed on point there long enough to kind of gently redirect you to it in, in 10 years. Exactly. So what was, what was going on with you during that 10-year dry drunk? Why, why did you stop going to meetings? What were you, you, just, what were you thinking? I just, I, about nine months in, that's when the obsession of alcohol was lifted from me. Okay. So, Did you have a sponsor work the steps in those first? Yeah, months? I worked uh, up to the uh, fourth step uh-huh. with my sponsor. I had some relief. Okay. And uh, about nine months in, the uh, obsession was lifted. I uh, unfortunately took that as a cue that uh, I'm managing well. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, the first step definitely is we admitted we we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. I definitely related with the first part of that step, but the second part of that step, I needed to uh, learn about that. Did not understand that alcohol is just a symptom and that my life was unmanageable. So I had the 10 years of uh, doing it my way till it came to a crescendo, had a lot of consequences, had all those court cases, criminal case, and it just drove me to seeking God and seeking uh, relief. And I knew alcohol was not the answer. So I, I, I was to the point, 
I was seeking a relief. So I, I, I unfortunately leaned on uh, drugs for that relief. But I continued to keep alcohol in that box because I was afraid to open that box. But what kind of drugs were you leaning on for relief? What were you doing weed or I, weed? And uh, it, I just picked up weed just like I did with alcohol on yeah. a daily basis. I was going to ask if you're everyday smoker. I, I really it turned into <laughs> everyday all day, yeah. and it's 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 truly amazing that I used it just like I did alcohol, and it. it became where it was ineffective and then i later picked up meth and uh that put me on the fast track to ruin for sure i bet yeah what was that smoking it or yeah smoking meth every day Uh, i was a weekend warrior but it was just like alcohol (laughs) it's creeping into my life you might have been a recreational meth user (laughs) (laughs) right exactly that's what we tell ourselves (laughs) you're like i just use it on the weekends so what was it like i'm super curious about this next question what was it like rolling back in to recovery after the 10 years of of nine and a half years i guess of not being there well, I knew I had uh, previous success in AA, so it was like a light bulb going off when my stepdad said, hey, John, you know, I just got finished with I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, you know, just all I, 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 all the selfishness we have. Yeah. He said, John, do you think it might be a good idea to try AA again? And it was just like, ding, ding. That was a moment of clarity that I needed to go back into the program full force, I was ready. There had been times before during that 10 years of being a dry drunk where I would go visit with my mother and attend a meeting, and I just could not wait to get out of that meeting. So I understand that AA is a gift, and having that desire to go to a meeting is a gift. I'm always conscious of that because I didn't always have that or desire to stay in recovery or attend meetings on a regular basis. It was tough. So you mentioned you have two sobriety dates. You said eight twenty seven ninety five is your original no alcohol date, right? That's right. And you still haven't had any alcohol. I since. still have not. And then you said you're reestablishing your new sobriety date is um, ten twelve of 07. Yes. And so is that about the time that we're talking about right yes, now when you rolled exactly, back Exactly, when I came back into the program. So explain to me how you, the second sobriety date is when you got sober from all substances. You're like, yo, I'm not smoking weed no more. I'm not doing right. meth no Anything more. Anything that alters me. Yeah, so mentally. that's your, your second sobriety date. Which one do you give in meetings? I mean, 10 12 Yeah, I just, uh, I tried giving my first sobriety date and I always would flinch. <laughs> So I knew that was my conscious saying, he just, hey. Yeah, he's like, let me just go with 10, 12, 07. So tell me about those first few weeks or months or years, whatever, rolling back in and getting that, that second sobriety date of 10, 12, 07. Where were you at mentally? Were you like ready to get a sponsor and do the work? I mean, because you only went through step four, right? Yeah, I was ready to do all of the steps. I met a great guy. It's funny how our higher power brings people into our lives that we need I remember going to a meeting and I knew I needed a sponsor. I closed my eyes and and I said, God, I need a sponsor. I don't know who it is. And literally I opened my eyes and there was my sponsor and he started talking to me and I asked him to be my sponsor right after that prayer. Yeah, Harley uh, worked through the steps with me. Yeah, it was the first time I worked all the steps. I stopped at step four previously graduated the program but when I came back to the program I had that urgency I was in that pain and I was ready for some relief and I knew uh, the 12 steps offered that relief so I was very eager to do whatever it took to uh, get that relief have you ever sponsored yourself for any extended period of time and how'd that work out for you 
you know, I, I don't know where I got this idea, but I have what I call this Clint Eastwood type mentality. I need to uh, take care of things myself. Don't let them see you sweat. So it's definitely hard for me to reach out to others uh, and be vulnerable. Who are you working with now? You have a sponsor now, same guy or somebody different? I have someone different. Uh, Pete K is my sponsor. Is he really? He was on here. I know it is crazy. He was a guest on here. You've got to listen to his episode if you have not already. Pete K is one of my favorites. I've had some great sponsors over the years. Harley is one of them. Sam Elliott was uh, my late sponsor. Are you, are you sponsoring guys? Are you sponsoring anybody right now? I am very active in uh, sponsoring young guys. Um, God's just opened up some great opportunities for service work recently. I uh, have uh, three sponsees currently. We've recently had a, uh, I guess, a sober living organization start attending our group. Part of their uh requirements are to get a sponsor so that's great so they're actively seeking sponsorship and uh, there's a lot of guys young guys so it's been a great opportunity to pour into those young men and and share my experience strength and hope it sounds like a target rich environment when they're very when they're busing them in and there's 15 dudes are like you guys not all get a sponsor tonight (laughs) they're like well seven of us are going to take john over there we're going to do that so i want to talk to you about your sponsorship style has it changed over the years as far as like how do you talk how you talk to these guys how you lead them through the steps have you seen any evolution between you sponsoring guys in your first five years and where you're at now or is exactly the same approach it's definitely evolved i tended to micromanage in the early days (laughs) what would you do give them deadline assignments oh yeah you need to call me (laughs) seven o'clock okay Ooh, you mean that's nice every day every day nowadays i give the guys the freedom i'm not there to be their dad or police police the program Mm -hmm. i'm there to just be available for them i tell them i get more out of it than you would imagine by helping and uh helps me stay close to the program i'm very excited about future sponsorship i've recently been introduced to the salvation army so and prison work looking forward to that next chapter just working on the training right now What do you do when a sponsee comes to you and they want to talk to you about something that you have no experience with? What do you do? I definitely bounce that off my sponsor or another elder in the program uh, or definitely read the literature. There's uh, lots of answers in the literature. I want to tell you a quick story about that. The first time that ever came up for me was when I had two, three, four, maybe five years sober and I was sponsoring this guy and I could tell he was angry from the jump and I could tell he had anger issues from the jump and uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, term called radiating rage but this dude radiated rage and I'm not sure if he knew it or not maybe he did know it maybe he did know it but he was putting off that vibe heavy and so we started getting into the steps and we start working and he starts talking to me about his rage issues and stuff and here's how much experience I have with that zero I've got, I'm his sponsor. He's talking to me about it. He's asking me questions about it. I have no experience with that. So I tell him, I said, hold, please. Hold, please. Just to let you know, I have no experience with that. But what I am going to do is I know a lot of people. And I'm going to go talk to my sponsor and see what he says. So I went and talked to my sponsor. And he said, contact this guy. He's an ex-Vietnam veteran. He's been sober 17 years. 
when he got here, he was very angry for many, many years, and he is not anymore. And I was like, that guy's a teddy bear. He's a loving, kind, gentle, smart, intelligent person. They're like, well, yeah, well, you didn't know when he got here. <laughs> he was not like that. So he has dealt with rage. He has dealt with PTSD. He has overcome it, and he would be a great resource for you and your sponsee. So I went to him. His name was Jerry. His name's still Jerry, still alive. I said to him, hey, Jerry, I've got a sponsee. He wants to talk about rage. I don't know what he's talking about. Can you please sit down with him or us and let's have a talk? And he goes, yeah, meet me up at Aquarius at 3 p.m. on Saturday. And I go, okay. So I told my boy, let's go. We went up there and we sat down. And what I want to tell you is the next three hours of my life that I sat down with those two gentlemen, I said zero words. I listened to them talk for three hours. It was probably in... When I look back on my life and I pass away and I try to rank maybe the top 100 hours of my life, that three-hour talk will be somewhere in my top 100 hours on this planet, listening to those two guys talk about something I didn't have a lot of experience with. And it changed me, me listening to them and how, he, and how Jerry dealt with rage. And then the guy that I was sponsoring, how he was going to supposed to be trying to emulate what Jerry did. It changed my life. And it changed how I thought about things. And it changed how I thought about prayer, how I thought about forgiveness, how I thought about meditation, how I thought about pausing, and how I thought about love. I just want to say that that was a bonus for me. And not knowing what that guy needed, but finding the person who did know what they needed and putting those two together. So that's one way that my sponsorship style has changed is bringing in outside help instead of me just making up stuff and blowing smoke and saying, well, maybe you should try this, or maybe you should try this, or, you know, Oprah has a master class on that, I heard. You know, not that there's anything wrong with Oprah and her master classes, but for me, it's better to find somebody that has real-life experience that we can sit down and talk to. And another way my sponsorship style has changed is in the beginning, I used to have real hard boundaries between me and the guys that I sponsor to protect myself and also to protect them. And I would tell them things like this at the beginning when we first started working together. I'd be like, listen, dude, I'm not your loan officer. I'm not going to be loaning your money. I'm not your taxi cab driver. I'm not going to be driving your ass all around town. I'm not your relationship sponsor, dude. You know, I'm not going to be like telling you how to talk to chicks. And uh, I'm not your financial advisor. What I am is your AA sponsor. My one and only job is to lead you through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous so you can have a spiritual experience. And that's what we're going to do. And we're not necessarily going to be friends. You know, I'm not trying to be your friend, bro. I'm trying to be your sponsor. And I used to tell them that at the <laughs> beginning. A lot of guys stayed with me and, and, and hung, in, hung in there anyway. I do not make that speech anymore to these guys at the beginning. And the reason I don't is because it's not necessary. What I do find is most of these guys that I do sponsor, I fall in love with them on some level. And they do become my friends. And at the beginning, I'm telling you, I'm not going to be your friend. I'm your sponsor. I'm not your friend. Well, guess what? At 21 years sober, most of the guys that I sponsor, I fall in love with them and I care about them and I want to know about their family and their health and their wealth and their dog and their kids' college graduation and the birth of their grandchildren and whatever's going on with them, I want to know about it because I care about them. Yeah, my sponsorship style has changed. And the last thing I'll say about how my sponsorship style has changed, and this is probably the biggest difference, is in the beginning, not harp too much on the God part of the program because I don't want to scare them off. And I'm like, I don't need to start talking to these guys about God the first week because that's going to scare them off. That's going to freak them out. And I, I don't want to talk to them about the God part of the program. And then what I figured out is there's no part of Alcoholics Anonymous that is a non-God part. The entire purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous is to allow you to find a power greater than, you, than yourself with which you can solve all your problems. So that means all of it is that, 
Now it's their conception of God and their conception of a higher power. And we'll figure that out together during the walk and the recovery of the work in the 12 steps. But I don't shy away from that anymore. Okay, one last question before we take our first break. Has the desire to drink or use drug again returned since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? Well, uh, before I came into the program with my current sobriety date of 10-12-07, I was at the turning point where I was contemplating drinking. And I it really scared me because I was thinking about drinking again. And uh, that's when someone suggested AA to me, trying it again. Sounded like a great idea because uh, drugs have really ravaged me. And I just couldn't imagine surviving drinking again. Yeah, I think that would have really been the extra weight that would have sunk you. Yeah. Sounds like you're already struggling with the alcohol or with the meth and the marijuana. If you <laughs> added alcohol back in that with your three w- DWI history, I think you would have ended up in a, a pretty scary place. I wanted to talk real quick about our website, SoberShares.com. It's ready for you to explore and enjoy. And here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes read our show reviews, email me directly at mike at SoberShares.com with your comments and suggestions. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that can, I can play back on our next episode and you'll hear your own voice on the podcast. You can access all of our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have a special Facebook page. Just go on Facebook and search Sober Shares, and you will see the group and then ask to, for admission to be uh, joined in and I will click approve and you can come in there and see all of the cool stuff that we have in the Facebook group called Sober Shares. You can also support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process will take less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. You can use a debit or credit card, whatever, it's super easy. Think of it like passing a basket at a meeting to help keep Sober Shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly expenses. I wanted to also let everybody know that the link that you click on is fixed. So it does go directly to our SoberShares.com PayPal site and any donation you throw in there will directly get kicked to us. That thing has been um, not working correctly for the last I don't know. It's kind of embarrassing to say, but like two or three months, it hasn't been working correctly. But as of yesterday, it is fixed. Another way that you can find that donation link is in the show notes. I fixed that yesterday. I updated all the show notes on the previous 23 episodes. So in the show notes on any app that you're listening to, if you scroll down to the bottom under the description of the podcast episode, you'll see three links. The first one you'll see will be to email me directly at mike at sobershares.com. You can click on that and it'll open up your email browser and you can hit me with the email quickly that way. The second link you'll see will be to sobershares.com. That's a clickable link. It'll take you right to our website. And the third one you'll see, you'll say donate and it's a clickable link there, which will take you right to the PayPal deal. I want to mention to our listeners by name that made a financial gift to move this project forward. Even though the link was not working correctly, they figured out how to do it anyway. And I mentioned him on the last podcast. I want to mention him again. His name is Chris F. and then Dorothy R. as well. So thank you for that. And I wanted to uh, read some feedback that we've been receiving on Apple Podcasts. I've got three feedbacks I want to read to you today. The first one is from Jess Erickson, and the title of her feedback from last Friday is called Food for the Hungry. This is what she had to say. I absolutely love this podcast. I love every single story told. The ability to relate, cry, laugh and feel these stories just makes me feel whole again. 
I can't express how much I look forward to each new episode. So thank you to Jess. The next one we received on January the 27th of 2022. The title is Great Podcast. And the author is Recovered underscore Stephanie. Mike is a fantastic host, making the guests feel very comfortable to open up and get vulnerable to speak the truth. The stories are powerful and inspiring. Thank you for this podcast. Thank you for that, Stephanie. And then the last one we received on January the 29th of 2022 from Monique. And the title of her feedback is Five Months Sober. I discovered this podcast when I got sober. And it has helped me so much hearing that I'm not alone. And a lot of the guests have had the same experiences as me. Thank you, Michael. Sending love from Las Vegas. So thank you to Monique, Jess, and Stephanie for those feedbacks. I want to assure you that I value your time and attention as a listener and remind you that our sole focus at Sober Shares podcast is to help people, and that guides everything that we do here. Now let's get back to our guest. Where are you at with God today? God is everything. You said it earlier. For me, uh, the 12 steps are basically how to discover God for dummies. <laughs> uh, That's a good one. Hold on. <laughs> it's the first time I've used a sound effect during the podcast. I always wanted to do that. <laughs> um, so what did you think when you saw that part of the uh, big book that talks about God's everything or he's nothing? What was our choice to be? Uh, we had to adopt God, uh, find a God, define a God of our understanding. That is the crux of the program. That's how I handle my anxiety, my fear. I have to use the program. I have to have a spiritual life and invite my higher power into my life, into my situations, into my fears. That is my, my tool. Have you rejoined the childhood church of your schooling, like the Methodist deal? Or are you coming drifting in and out with that? Are you doing your own deal? What are you, what are you doing? I'm active in church. My faith has evolved. I currently go to a Southern Baptist denomination. I've been dabbling in Pentecostal, and I, I love the Pentecostal faith. And my wife is definitely not sharing that same belief system, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I just, when I am connected with God, my life is, was once in black and white, and now it's in color. And uh, AA has really taught me how to have a spiritual life and versus a religious life. Obviously, I, I do have a religious outward worship, but I have that inward connection with my higher power that I didn't have before. And AA, the program, the 12 steps has uh, cultivated that relationship with God. Is there any one of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that you want to talk to us about today? And if you could, maybe you could read it first and then talk to us about that step and, wh and what you want to say about it. Uh, that would be step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I believe that's a very powerful step and part of the, the, the program, working the steps. It's a, a point uh, where we divulge to another person uh, our deep, dark secrets, things that we never would contemplate sharing with another human being, something we would take to the grave. And it was very uh, powerful for, for me to shed that guilt and shame that I was carrying it was very uplifting. Do you remember when you were talked about that first initial run of sobriety before you did your 10-year dry drunk? You said you had done your fourth step. Did you read that to somebody? Did you get to the fifth step that first time? I did. You I did. did. And that's where you received a lot of your 
um, freedom that allowed you to back off and leave the program. For right. I, you know, I, I thought that it was by my managing mm-hmm. that uh, I had this relief and I really, you know, uh, worked the steps in reverse and started getting really busy mm-hmm. and uh, didn't have time for the program. Yeah. But, uh, but it was because of that relief that I received after doing the fifth step with Harley. That's cool that you get, at least got there and got that relief. You you got up to six and seven, which is the beginning of the character development steps, and you're like, I got to go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, that seems like a lot. That seems like a lot. Um, can we talk about step 11? Let's shift gears and talk about step 11 for a minute. I'm going to read it to you real quick, and then we'll, I want to know about what styles, and fo- what styles and forms of meditation and prayer are you using for step 11, which reads, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Can you talk to us about what you're doing with step 11? Yes. Um, for me, I, I have a lot of prayer uh, kicking off the day. or uh, That's part of my uh, system or rituals is to pray at the beginning of the day to uh, God grant me the serenity to uh, accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I uh, pray to God that he keeps me sober for that day and uh, help me be of service. And uh, it just sets the tone of uh, getting out of that selfish, self-centered mindset that uh, is my default. And, uh, you know, the, the, the meetings uh, help with the meditation portion of that. I tend to uh, meditate in meetings, get quiet, reflect, listen. Um, uh, as I've uh, matured a little bit, I've uh, kind of weaned myself off of caffeine and I'm able to to sit still and meditate much longer without so much coffee in my system. I've, I've, <laughs> How much did you used to drink? I was two or three pots of coffee a day. What? Did that you get know, you jacked up or what? Very jacked up and my <laughs> caffeine intake was very high and you do I, seem calmer now than when I, I first met you <laughs> I'm uh, down to two cups a day except for today I had a little bonus, Go, bonus cup of coffee today. Little jacked up today does your wife join you in prayer and meditation in the morning or any other times no that's something I do on my own it's uh, at my desk at work uh, when I'm uh, about to start the day at work and just to set the tone of my day to be of service to others and, and, and to God. And, uh, that helps me for the most part till my noon meeting mm-hmm. <laughs> to stay focused. And have, you ever, have you ever asked her if she would like to join you sometimes in morning prayer and meditation? Have you ever asked her that? I have not. Okay. I have not. Well, something to think about. Uh, I, something to think about. Something to think about. I, um, my wife, um, and child did not join me in prayer and meditation for several years, several, several years. And the reason why at some, some level, I was kind of embarrassed about it that like I was having to pray and meditate every morning to just be a regular dude. And so I was a little, I used to do it in early sobriety in my bathroom with the door closed because I didn't want her to see me like on my knees praying in the morning and meditating. And then I had a kid with her and I didn't ask him to do it or join me. And then one day somebody asked me, do your wife and kids join you in morning meditation? I go, no. And they go, why? And I was like, I don't know, man. I just have never asked them to. And so I thought about it and I was like, well, 
let me just ask them and see what they say. And so I asked my wife, I was like, yo, you don't have to all the time, but I'm opening an invitation to you. And maybe it would help us feel closer together, but maybe you would want to join me in prayer and meditation sometimes in the morning. You, you know where I am and you're, you're welcome to come. And so anyways, long story short, they did eventually join me. And now we effort to get that done every morning. And we pray together as a family um, in a circle holding hands, and we talk about what our vision is for the day, and we ask God to place us all three in a position to be of service to people. We ask God every morning to keep me sober and not let me use any alcohol or drugs, because if I use alcohol or drugs, it's game over. It's game over for everybody that's in that prayer circle, you know? It's going to be disaster time. So we pray for me to stay sober, no alcohol, no drugs, put us in a position to be of service to others. Please direct our thoughts and, and, our, and our actions and our thinking. And a lot of it, I just straight hijack off of page 86, 87, and 88. <laughs> you know, I just, they probably think I'm a genius when I say all this stuff. But it's straight up hijacked off of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, 86, 87, 88. And whatever I feel else is coming down, down the pike that day. And uh, it, it gets us all started in, in a good way. But it took me years to get there. Um, do you have any AA heroes or mentors? And if so, why are they important to you? Uh, first, right out of the gate would be Sam Elliott. He's passed on, but he was, I just feel like God just puts people in your life to uh, teach you, fill, fill that void. Or, what did Sam teach you? He just was full of peace and patience and love. And he communicated that without judgments and let people be people. You know, he just was just very patient. That wore off on me as a great attribute, character, trait to have and wanted to emulate that. There's so many interesting characters in AA. And in my experiences, if you have what I call regular meeting and attendance, you run into other people that have regular meeting attendance and you get to know them. And guess what? Not everybody's the same. And a lot of people have traits in sobriety and just in their basic human makeup and personality type that you can choose to emulate. And you can say to yourself, hey, Mike, I want to be more like that dude over there. Whatever that means to you, whether he's uh, an entrepreneur and owns and runs successfully three businesses and has for 25 years, or you feel like, okay, that guy's maybe way more spiritually evolved than I am, and I would like to be like him. Or you could say to yourself, hey, I'm about to get married here in a couple days, and that guy's been sober for 25 years, so maybe I should talk to him and figure out what a 25-year successful sobriety-based marriage looks like. Or maybe he's a great workout guy or has good eating habits, whatever. There's all kinds of really cool people in AA that you can get close to and emulate their behavior just by, you know, making yourself available at regular meetings with regular attendance and you get to get close to some of these people. Now, there's also the flip side of that coin. And what that flip side of that coin is, there's people that now call synonymous, in my opinion, experience that I do not want to be like. And I want nothing that they have. And there are some people in Alcoholics Anonymous and this might be controversial to the listener, but it's a true statement. There are some people in Alcoholics Anonymous that are worth nothing more than a bad example. And you can emulate them and say, okay, I do not want to do what that guy does. I do not want to conduct myself like him. And they get to serve as a negative or a bad example for me. I'm not talking about for you, the listener, but maybe this will work out in your experience too. But my experience is, I, is like, I don't want nothing that guy has, so I am not going to 
emulate any of his activities, but I, that's, that's the small, small percentage of the, of the membership that I've been involved in. My, my criteria, when I'm looking for a new sponsor or I want a new sponsor, or I want a new friend in AA or a new accomplice or a new, mm, just a new friend in AA, I say to myself a bunch of questions. And um, especially when I'm looking for a new sponsor, I say stuff like this to myself. I want somebody that's been sober longer than I have. I want somebody that's smarter than I am. I want somebody that's more spiritual than I am. I want somebody that's been married longer than I am. I want somebody that's been a father longer than I am. And I want somebody that's been a business owner longer than I am. Because those are all things that I aspire to. I want to be, I am married, I want to stay married. I am a father, I want to be a good father. I am a business owner, I want to be a good business owner. I want to be long-term sober so this guy can show me how, because he's been sober longer than I have. So there's a lot of criteria that go into um, my selection process for AA heroes and mentors. And some of these guys I just fall in love with, and girls. There's so many fantastic women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I cannot tell you how much uh, I have learned from the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I um, just love seeing a, an example of a woman who cares herself, carries herself with dignity and pride and intelligence and class as a sober woman. When I see that, I'm like, yo, that is, that's an AA miracle right there. And I just really love seeing that. Can you talk to us a little bit about one of your toughest challenges that you've had in sobriety and how the 12 steps have helped you with that challenge? My mother uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, I was able to be sober during that time in her life. She eventually succumbed to the disease, but the program gave me the opportunity to be present for my mother and uh, for my family and to uh, help them go through this tough time. Uh, just was able to cherish those moments and I don't think I would have reacted that way if I was active in my addictions I definitely you, would have checked out yeah can you tell me a little bit about more what that looked like in real life as far as you being able to be present and available for your family can you give me an example or two about how that looked what that looked like sober John being there and showing up what that looked like just being available to for the tears for the hugs and uh just be able to communicate how I feel with uh, towards my mother in those intimate moments. And, uh, you know, you just cannot put a price on that. And I cherish those times. That's fantastic that you're able to do that. That's a gift. That's a straight-up gift of sobriety because um, thank God you were sober during that time because uh, I can put myself in that situation, and if I was using and drugging it, I'd be in the parking lot smoking weed and drinking before I would go into the hospital to try to address whatever was going on that particular day before I went in there and be like, are we having a good day? Are we having a bad day? I'd already be high in the parking lot before I walked into the hospital. And then when you get there, you're not as emotionally available for what's going on that day. Cause you're already wasted and it's nine 30 in the morning and you're already super high or super drunk. And uh, that's a blessing um, to be. I'm sorry that happened to your family and that your mom, but I'm stoked that you were able to be there as a pillar of a, a good family member that people could rely on. Can you talk to us about why going to meetings is important? I cannot express enough how important meetings, regular meetings, are a benefit. You know, meeting makers make it, as they say. There's some magic that happens in the rooms of AA. 
you know, there's a wisdom of crowds. AA has taught me that I have contempt before investigation. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Yeah. To admit that. Close-minded. Yeah, close-minded. And I can't tell you the number of times where I've bounced out a situ- bounced a situation out to the group and someone would come to me after the meeting and give me a suggestion, give me an idea and to try it. And uh, the success of that uh, result of, of taking someone's advice. But um, I just, you know, as my sponsor would say, I, I found my zebras, you know, uh, people that think like I do and have the same fears and insecurities and, you know, alcoholics, addicts, they just look at the world a little differently than the normies. I get solutions in, in the group uh, that I've, I don't think I would have found otherwise. That's fantastic. I remember one time I was going to the Aquarius group and I had like, um, I don't know, like five years sober. And I went in there and I was super, super upset and super confused on like um, what kind of flat screen TV I was going to buy. Because there's like, there was a plasma, they had LEDs, they had... um, I don't even remember all the different types, uh, like these different technologies. And I was like, should I be getting a plasma or should I be getting LED? And I was seriously upset <laughs> at like 1130 and I'm walking into this noon meeting with five or six years sober and I'm freaked out. And I go in there and the topics that were brought up in that meeting that day and what was going on with some of the other group members floored me they were walking through difficult situations in their life and the 12 steps were helping them deal with those situations. And it totally recalibrated what was going on with me and what I was upset about that day. Because my entire world was, what kind of TV am I going to buy? I don't know. And I would get really mad about that and upset because I didn't know what to do. But I went to that noon meeting and it recalibrated everything for me. And I realized when I left that meeting, I was like, Mike, that's one of the reasons it's important to go to meetings because it, it really gives you a new perspective and it really readjusts your perspective on what's going on with the world and how you fit into it. And, you know, you're, you're not the only one um, in this world. There's other people dealing with other things that are way, 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 way bigger with what you're struggling with. And that's why you need to go to these meetings to get ripped out of yourself and your own little world that you build for yourself and realize that there's other people struggling with real problems, real medical diagnoses, real financial challenges, real challenges with sobriety and and being able to maintain sobriety. And I just realized, I was like, yo, that's one of the reasons I need to go to meetings is just to continue to hear the truth spoken from these nice, lovely people and allow me to move forward um, with my life. I wanted to talk to you about if there's any life situations that you're currently dealing with that the 12 steps are helping you to navigate. What's going on in your life right now that you feel like the program is really helping you navigate? Work can be very stressful. I, I work in a profession and uh, I deal with real dollars and millions of dollars and uh, responsible for people's livelihood as a manager and if I look at the big picture I can definitely get into some anxiety about that but you know the program teaches me to live one moment at a time one day at a time to break up those situations those stresses into increments that I can I can handle so be where my hands are at the time and not go into the future. 
that uh, helps me stay in the now. I've always said that uh, the program has taught me to uh, be an adult. And <laughs> That's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. <laughs> You're 50 years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know these people don't deal with the situations I deal with. I but know. Half the stuff I come up with, I'm like, this is embarrassing, Michael. You're 51 years old. <laughs> Growing up in public in these AA rooms, you're like learning how to, like, uh, I found out I'm real sensitive and a little bit petty sometimes. <laughs> and I'm Very like, self-centered. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. I'm growing up in public. This is tough. It is tough. Um, do you have any complaints about the AA program or think that there are any parts of it that should be changed? I understand this principle that uh, we have a primary purpose about uh, alcoholism by itself, and that's our only focal point. I've had situations where a group would uh, ask someone to leave if they did not profess that they were an alcoholic. That was uh, offensive to me because I didn't know what I was when I first went to a meeting. Maybe to have some flexibility about having a closed meeting for that group to open up the meeting to that person that is not professing to be an alcoholic. That's something that I would see would be something to change or relax. Interesting. What did that person identify as an addict, but not an alcoholic? Right. That automatically kicks off them being ejected from the group or the group uh, voting to open the meeting that once was closed. Yeah. So for people that are listening that don't have a deep pool of knowledge or experience about Alcoholics Anonymous, we have several types of meetings. And once again, we are not, this podcast is not Alcoholics Anonymous. We do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just telling you my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. And my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is there's several types of meetings. We have open meetings, we have closed meetings, we have discussion making meetings, we have speaker meetings, we have step studies, big books, all different types of meetings. And the kind of meeting he's referring to is called a closed meeting. Closed meetings are reserved for people that have um, a problem with alcohol. And so um, to be um, to be in attendance at a closed meeting, you're supposed to be able to say that you're an alcoholic or you want to get sober or you have a desire to stop drinking because that's our only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. So I think what he's saying is somebody showed up and said, I'm a, I'm a drug addict. And, and the people were like, well, this is for alcoholics, not drug addicts. you got to get out of here. Or they have option B which would be to open the meeting up and change the format of that meeting from a closed meeting to an open meeting, which I have done, seen done several times, but I have also seen it done several times where they did not choose to do that. And the person was asked to leave, which is unfortunate and not good. That's fantastic. I appreciate you bringing that to the forefront and, and mentioning that. Can you give me an example of one of the promises coming true in your life? You've got a read out there, a print out there of the promises in front of you. If you want to, uh, read, pick one of those or read one of those and tell us about one of those coming true if you like, if you've got a promise example. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. I've always had uh, anxiety about money. As an alcoholic, uh, I go to the extremes with my thoughts. You know, I'm going to be living under a bridge. Uh, you know, if uh, I'm going to, you know, be homeless and unemployed and uh, I had to shed that thinking. That's where my higher power comes in. God is everything or God is nothing. I need to be using my higher power. My sponsor had me write down what I wanted my God to be and what I didn't want my God to be. So I still have that list today. 
And I have to use my higher power to help with those fears. Fear of economic insecurities, uh, that has uh, left me, you know, obviously I have bouts with that, but I know that with my history and track track record that my higher power is going to help me through whatever situation uh, that I will encounter. That's very interesting. I want to jump to something that you said within the middle of that answer that I found super interesting. You said that your sponsor told you to write down some of the character assets that you wanted your higher power to have and a couple of the character assets you did not want your higher power to have. Can you maybe share with us one or two of the things on either side of the ledger that you can remember? Oh, yeah. What I didn't want my God to be would be uh, keeping score, punishing, unforgiving, and the flip would be you know, loving, has my best interests at heart, unconditional love. That's fantastic. That's what I would write down too. And it's what I did write down too. And when I think about it, you know, from long-term sobriety, I look at that and I say, that's also the definition that most children would want to write down of characteristics they would like to have their parents to have. That's the kind of mom and dad I would want. Well, it's kind of the same thing about us when we get sober. If we don't already have a solidified hardcore version of what we want or know our God to be, we have the freedom within this program via the text that says a God of your understanding to create and make our own God to follow for as long as we need to until it takes us somewhere else or we just stay with that God or whatever happens. I don't know what your path's going to be, but when I got here, I had to do that. I got to the third step and the second step and I didn't know what to do and because I wasn't in touch with the Methodist church anymore. I was drifting and had been drifting and blind and gone and a non-believer for so long. I had nothing. I had no, I had no vision. And so I just had a lot of fear. And so my sponsor said, here's what I want you to do, Michael. I want you to go home tonight. And I want you to get a piece of paper and I want you to draw a line right down the middle of the paper. And uh, I want you to write the character traits that you want your hired to have and then the character traits you don't want your higher power to have. And I wrote down the exact same thing that you did And I remember writing that down and I wrote down almost a verbatim what you had. So that's awesome. Do you have a favorite passage or part of the big book that you want to share with us? Page 417 always comes into mind. I remember the day that uh, someone mentioned that page. I didn't have it memorized at that time and how it impacted them and their life in a meeting. Immediately went home and uh, cracked open the big book to 417, the second paragraph and And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept the person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me, in my attitudes. What has been your most profound experience working the 12 steps? I have to say the day, I remember the day and and where I was, where I was driving, when the obsession of alcohol was lifted from me. Up to that point, I just thought about alcohol every minute. I would circle liquor stores, bars, and it was real touch and go for quite a while up till the ninth month. And then 
I realized while I was driving that I had not thought about alcohol or using alcohol the entire day. I just thought that was a miracle to me. It was something that was definitely a milestone. What is the value of service work in the program and in what ways are you giving back to help the newcomer? A new uh, sober living group has plugged into our group. I haven't experienced that before in my my sobriety as far as uh, helping others. It's just been all of a sudden, you know, a door has opened up and all these service opportunities have been made available to me. And it's all happening at the same time currently. Sponsorship, um, I've been uh, working at the Salvation Army for people uh, uh, in that capacity for recovery. I'm scheduled to go this weekend to a prison in uh, Jacksboro to share my story. And it's just been amazing, the service opportunities that God's made available to me to share my story, my experience, strength, and hope. And I just consider it an honor, definitely uh, using the opportunity. What about dating and sobriety? Let's talk about dating and sobriety. Let's talk about marriage and sobriety. Let's get to that stuff. What do you think? I saw a lot of horror stories, or not horror stories, but... uh, casualties of dating in AA, dating in sobriety. <laughs> I was one. Dating, yeah, you know, uh, dating on AA campus. So I was a little leery about that, uh, dating someone in the program, uh, uh, two damaged individuals getting together. I didn't think that was a good match. <laughs> two wrongs. I see it work. <laughs> two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> right. And um, I, those are the one. Uh, there are some success stories. We have to also say we that. Definitely. Let's cover both know, sides of the coin. A sponsor recommended not getting in a serious relationship for at least a year. And? And, uh, you know. Uh, did you do it? I don't think I did, Come but I was on. definitely leery. <laughs> I dated, but uh, I did not date anyone in the program. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I tried a little bit, but, uh, you know, uh, I attribute being uh in the marriage I am today because of AA, I've been married three times. So, you know, my track record is like uh, my drinking, not very good in uh, relationships. Celebrated 11 years in, of marriage with my wife and tie that into the program, being able to keep a job. I've been celebrating 18 years of my current employment. And uh, AA has allowed that to happen. I tend to let things unfold now. Instead of uh, knee-jerk reactions, I like to pause before I uh, react. Um, I can't tell you the amount of draft emails I have in my my uh, unsent folder of emotional uh, responses to situations. But the program has taught me to pause and to think about that seriously. What are the motivations? In your real email drafts folder or like your imaginary one? Like, My real email drafts folder. <laughs> you actually folder, type them out. And type I've them. topped them out, but I did not Why don't you pull up your phone and read us a couple of those? <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty selfish and self-centered. Wow. Have you been to any AA conferences and did you like them? I've never been to a conference. I've definitely been around a lot of people that have, yourself included, and seen the benefit, singles in sobriety. Um, well, you can't go to that one anymore. You're married. <laughs> That's right. Um, I just... Uh, I guess have, you could go, but you would just be more... Observer. Right, observer. <laughs> Does anybody need some sponsorship? Yeah, marriage sponsorship. <laughs> That's right. Try to... Yeah, seriously. <laughs> do you do you think you would want to go to any conferences in the future? Or not really? Is that not your deal? It doesn't have to be. I'm just curious. It hasn't been my deal, uh, but... 
I definitely would like to see some long-term sobriety, mingle with some people. When you go to a, a meeting regularly, you see the same people here, the same story. So it's good to venture out and get some other perspectives. I love AA conferences. They're a really, really good time for me. I like hearing those high-quality speakers on Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning. And I like the fellowship and the food and the fun. And it just, for me, is um, a really good time. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or cover? We're coming towards the end of our time here together. I mean, the next question is, do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? But before we get to the parting thoughts part, is there anything else that you have in your notes or your thoughts that you want to jam on a little bit? I'm totally open to whatever you want to talk about. Just to take the disease very seriously, it's a killer disease, alcoholism. And I've seen lots of people through my history in AA pass away from this program. And it's been a while since that's happened, but I've always, there's always been someone that I've been close to and got away from the program and I found out that they passed away. It always reminds me that this is a powerful disease and that not to take my sobriety for granted. What about any parting thoughts or final thoughts for our audience? Any way you want to wrap this up and just talk a little bit about some of your final thoughts? Don't quit before the miracle happens. This is a process. It's been a, a lifelong process, but it's one day at a time. I'm a free beer tomorrow kind of guy. I can't really think about the future or never drinking again, but I can stay sober for today. And I can, I can block off my life in a 24-hour period and uh, you know, give yourself a break. Don't be impatient with yourself. I've had a life, you know, most of my life in my alcoholism and addiction, and it's going to take a while to uh, work through that and uh, those preconceived notions. But, uh, you know, give yourself a get the gift of time in this program and, and uh, plug into a, a group that you mesh with and stay regular in the meetings. I'm glad you say that. Our friend, our common friend, Terry, always talks about giving yourself the gift of time, time, time. Mm-hmm. And he always says that. And the longer that I'm sober, I realize he is so right, right, right. <laughs> Just give yourself the gift of time. You did not get yourself into where you are right now uh, overnight, and you probably ain't going to get out overnight. It takes years and years and years and sometimes decades and decades and decades for me to untangle this ball of wax with God's help and the program's vision and execution. And, and uh, eventually it works out. It all works out every time. And I've been able to get into a position uh, over the last several years where I've developed uh, a skill set where I've been able to wear life like a loose garment. And I feel like most of the time that I've been kind of like dipped in Teflon or um, have been provided a bulletproof body armor by my higher power that allows me to acquiesce and glide and slide through life in a way where I can deal with it without having to drink or do drugs to change the way that I feel. And the way that I've done that is I've had a spiritual experience. And that spiritual experience was brought to me by Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. And so what that looks like for me is I would define that spiritual experience as a profound personality change. And that profound personality change has allowed me to do, say, think and feel things that I could not do before on my own willpower. And so that is a pure, a pure gift and an act of grace that I've received. And I treat it as a precious gift. And that's why I try, and I know you try, to stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous 
and continue to get the good word out that recovery is possible for everybody. Because if you can do it and I can do it, and we're both hardcore drug addicts and alcoholics, and I know you are and I know I am, and if I can put down 21 years and you can put down 14 years and the future's looking good for both of us, and I know that there's got to be something here, there's got to be something here, and there's going to be, be something here for you too as the listener. So we just love you guys out there, and we're so excited that you're listening and just super, super stoked that you found this podcast. Can you give our listeners any contact information um, that you may have so they can get in touch with you if they need to? Yes, I can be reached at hello, hi, see ya at protonmail.com. Can you spell that out for us? Hello, H-E-L-L-O, hi, H-I, see ya, S-E-E-Y-A at protonmail.com. That's fantastic. Thank you for joining us today here on Sober Shares. This has been a moving experience, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. It's been fantastic. Thanks for having me, Mike. I want to read something from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous for closing. This is called A Vision for You, and it's from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. We'll see you all on the next episode of Sober Shares. 